So hopefully after talking about this two or three, four weeks in a row, you've downloaded or printed out the sheets regarding Romans. Um, you will have uh, some links there of some sheets that I've made up for you just in a, in a very plain document of uh, Romans 3, 19 through 31, and then Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 that we're going to be getting to in the coming weeks. And everything that we're talking about is what it is to live the Christ life. Um, I, I'm encouraging you to get rid of the language, live the Christian life. That makes it sound like that we as people just need to do better or reconstruct something. And that's not living the Christian life. That's actually trying to keep the law. Uh, that's us trying to find the power within ourselves. And living the Christ life is recognizing that we have no power in ourselves. And actually all the power is in Christ and him manifesting himself through us. As we begin this morning, we are rallying around this whole concept in Romans 5.1 regarding the peace that we have and that it came about through justification by faith in Christ. And so we've been looking at certain vocabulary words. Uh, we've looked at righteousness, faith, justified, uh, a gift, or what is grace. We've looked at redemption. We've looked at propitiation or the fact that Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. And I think that it's important for us to maybe take chapter 3, verses 19. We're going to read to 31. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. I know that you're probably saying, good grief, we read this every week. Yes, we do. And whenever we become masters of it, we won't need to read it anymore. And so I, I encourage you to, to grab a hold of that and, and, and digest it and feed upon it and, and pull it apart and everything that you could possibly see. Uh, because I, I, today we are going to look at how all of this ties together and why faith is such a crucial issue. In Romans 3.19 it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin." But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus." whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed, God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. We have seen that grace is the pure, unrecompensed kindness and favor of God that makes justification available to everyone as a free gift. Great cost is found in the subjects of redemption, with Jesus Christ becoming our mercy seat, the place of acceptance, 
where we can actually meet with God. So with these positional truths in mind, uh, the flesh desires recognition and seeks to boast in relationship to our acceptance by God. Our flesh is just going to tend to want to do that. But the work of Christ and the nature of righteousness make this an impossibility. So just as the law condemns both Jew and Gentile, only faith in Jesus Christ makes either one acceptable. And while false gods operate on a personal merit system, only Yahweh accepts the perfect merits of another. Now with that in mind, let's start in verse 27 and pick up where we left off and break this down. The question that Paul is anticipating when he speaks of, it's only by faith, it's only by faith, it's only by faith, he says this over and over again. In fact, if you've printed this page out from verses 19 to 27, you will notice that the idea of faith or believe is listed five times on this page. Paul is seeking to be very clear about the fact that salvation and justification has been made possible by a gratuitous gift of grace. I don't know how much more redundant we could be on that, but that, that he's supplied it freely and that the only thing that is needed to appropriate that free gift is faith in Christ. And so he anticipates it. Now, remember, in the first century, they didn't have text messaging. And so when we see a question and answer back and forth going on, try not to lose track of it, but, but remember that they didn't have the ability to ask a question and wait a couple of minutes for somebody to get back to them. Notice the question that he asks in verse 27. Where then is boasting? Where do I get to say something about what has happened? Where do I get to glory in this? Where can I gloat? Where can I take pride in something that has been done? Where do I fit in where I get to make much of myself? And what's interesting about that is, is notice that Paul follows that up with a very quick answer. It is excluded. In fact, if you look up that word in the Greek lexicon, you find out that it means that there's no room for it or that it's been completely shut out. Uh, so imagine the idea of someone that you don't want in your house. You pick them up by the britches and you kick them out of the front door and you lock it behind. You've shut them out of your house is the idea. Where's the room for boasting? You throw the boasting out and you lock the door. There's no room for it whatsoever. Now, why is that? Here's the reason why. is because works equal the idea of merit. And merit will always give way to boasting. But where there is merit on behalf of a person, there is no acceptance with God ever. It is impossible. The idea of perfect righteousness, the idea of perfect holiness can never be attained. Again, we see what is brought up in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have missed the standard that has been set forward. So this is why all boasting goes to boasting in the cross, because that's where sufficient and accepted work is found. Now notice here, where then is the boasting? It's excluded. It's shut out. And then the question is, by what kind of law? Now, easily our minds could travel to the idea of that this law means the law of Moses. Unless the context is going to specify that that's where your mind should go, don't think that. The word law is mentioned 78 times in the book of Romans. And by far, not every time means the law of Moses. A lot of times it's talking about the idea of a rule or a principle, some sort of custom that's been installed. Sometimes it does speak of a legal system that somebody's having to deal with, or sometimes it does deal with the law of Moses, what God has put forward. Works are always going to give ground to boasting. And so notice he says, by what kind of law, by what kind of principle are we talking here? 
of works? Is it a principle of works? Notice, trying to fit it in there again to get some sort of ground for self-righteousness to explode. And notice, he shuts it down quickly. No, but by a law, by a principle of faith. Now, again, I know that we've gone over faith, and I want to touch on it for just a second. If you're looking for a definition of faith, look no further than Hebrews 11.1. Uh, And you can look at that later. But I think it's important for us to sum this up in the idea of faith is a non-meritorious response to hearing about the work that Christ has already done. We hear the gospel and we believe that it's true. We respond with the belief. There's no work in that. If you're sitting somewhere right now and you've got a window close to you and you've got the blinds open or the window up or whatever, look out the window. That doesn't take any work. You're simply responding to what I've asked you to do. It's the same way with faith. You are convinced that it's true. And so the principle of righteousness by faith is acceptable or let's say appropriated only by the means of a non-meritorious response. And that idea is faith. Now, with that being said, and there's no room for boasting whatsoever, Paul wants to follow it up on verse 28. For, there's your causal conjunction, and he says there, we, there's your personal inclusive pronoun, we maintain that a man is justified by faith, so notice it's not about doing, it's about being, justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now let me break this down for you real quick. In verse 28, this word maintain here is a very interesting Greek word. It's logizomai. And the reason why you need to understand this word is because it is all over the place from this point forward in the book of Romans. And so the idea of what maintain here, it's it's very odd that it's translated this way here, and I understand why it is, but the word usually means to calculate. Or if you have a King James version, you're used to the word reckon. If you have King James or you come from Kentucky, you're used to the word reckon. And that's not like, I reckon that that's true. It's the idea that you are considering it absolutely true, and you are now moving forward because you have accepted that fact. You're reckoning something, or you're counting something, or you're considering it is the idea. So we maintain, we calculate, we reckon that a man, we've, we've considered it true that a man is justified by faith, and here it is, apart, without, or sorry, without, with absence, uh, a lack of, it's independent of, apart from works of the law, they play no place in this. So notice, the standard by which to measure right and wrong does not come into play in this situation because it will always measure us Wrong. So the absence of law forces an absence of works. It's only by faith. Now here's where we get into a real interesting part, verses 29 and 30. Because if you were doing a yearly reading, if you were doing a daily devotion, you might grab a hold of this. You might read right through it. Okay, yeah, he's kind of being redundant and saying the same thing. I get it or whatever. But he's, he's making a striking point here that has extreme ramifications all throughout the Old Testament. And so we're going to trace... This thought process and where it's come from and what exactly it's saying. Uh, and I encourage you to have a pen ready so that you can jot down some references so you can put some things together. Some of the things we're going to talk about, if you haven't been uh, tuning into Grace Bible Church for a while, if you're not familiar with what we looked at in the foundational framework series when I first got here uh, and all of that, this is going to throw you for a loop and you're not going to believe me at first. But I encourage you to search the scriptures and to see that these things are so. So hopefully I built enough suspense uh, with you right now to where you're intrigued. 
Uh, verse 29, here's the question. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Since the law was given to the Jews, since all the privileges that were given to the Jews have been manifested throughout the Old Testament, the majority of the Old Testament, is God only their God? Is he not the God of the Gentiles only? Does he just have this one people here? And here's what's interesting is, is Paul quickly answers this with yes of Gentiles also. Now, why is that? He is the God of the Gentiles and the Jews based on, if anything, I mean, there's a myriad of things, but based on one indispensable fact that he is the creator of all people. Now, look how it says, yes, of Gentiles also, and then he moves into 30 here, since indeed God who will justify, declare righteous, the circumcised, that's the Jew by faith, and the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, through faith is one. So whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, you are only acceptable to God on the equal playing field of faith alone based on the merits of Jesus Christ on behalf of the entire world, and it is one in the same God. Now here's why this is important. There is no other God, and I use that word with a little g, who declares anyone righteous by faith. If you've noticed all the cultic practices, if you've noticed all the varying denominations, if you've noticed all the high church hierarchies, always hold to a faith plus something or a certain amount of works that need to be fulfilled. Uh, you have to make a, a, a trek to Mecca for Islam. Uh, you have to uphold the four pillars, those types of things. Uh, with the Catholic Church, there's the, all the sacraments that you have to uphold, the different ordinances and those types of things. And a lot of people find comfort in that because it's considered high church and there's a level of reverence with that. Uh, and, and so that's, that's the deception of the way that it gets you. Uh, anytime that people have added baptism to faith, anytime that people have added repentance to faith is the idea of being sorry for sin or that you have to grieve and mourn and wail and weep and those types of things. It's an unbiblical definition of repentance. Uh, it comes in subtle ways and it comes in large ways to Jim Jones and a Kool-Aid cult or whatever it might be. But what it is, it is all comes down to works in all of these situations of these false um, um, belief systems, if you want to say it that way, religious systems, I can use that because religion is the very definition of works, are all because they originate in little g gods that cannot declare righteous or save in any way like the big G creator God. And so they turn around and they flip the narrative to make salvation rest upon our shoulders and to enforce guilt and remorse in us. Now, this is an incredibly dangerous situation. And notice that it says here that the God who justifies both Jew and Gentile, both of them through faith, I know one says by faith and through faith, that, that shouldn't matter at all, it's all meaning the same thing, is one God. And this often gets distorted because we miss out on the fact that there is a creator over all things, and he is the creator of his creatures, and there is a distinction there. He is the maker of every man, woman, and child, period. Now, why is this a big deal? Here's the reason why. Take your Bible and turn with me first to Genesis 15, 6. And I'm going to show you just some, some very basic things throughout the scriptures. A lot of people get hung up on this idea of the law because they believe that the law 
was the way that people were saved in the Old Testament. That is a lie. It is not. Keeping the law for the Jew was a way that they manifested the intimacy that they had with Yahweh to the rest of the nations. So if you look at Genesis 15, we have the idea of Abraham here, or Abram as he's known at this time. And I just want you to see one quick thing. Look at 15.6, a very pivotal verse, very important in the, in the New Testament as well. Then he, that's Abram, believed in Yahweh, and he reckoned it. Now notice that word reckoned. It's the same idea that we saw before with logizomai. Uh, of course, logizomai is Greek. This is, this is Hebrew. But it's the same idea of crediting it to him. And your, your translation might actually say credit it to his account, something like that. He reckoned it to him as righteousness. How was Abram justified before God? Salvation has always been by faith alone. That is how one has become accepted before God, because God has given forth his word, and when one believes, they are then credited with righteousness. Now, that's a pivotal point that we deal with here. Now, with that being the situation, and very early on, uh, in the development of civilization out of Genesis 1 and 2, we see that the idea that acceptance before God is always by faith, we have periods of rebellion that have taken place in the scriptures. For instance, we all know Genesis 3. We all understand the idea of the curse that came upon, do not eat of the fruit of the tree, uh, the knowledge of good and evil. Eve goes ahead and does it. Adam goes ahead and does it. And they've, they've, they've fallen into this situation where now death has become uh, the new normal that they have to deal with. Take that for whatever it's worth. Just praise God you don't live in the state of Michigan right now. But anyway, moving on. Then you have a second incident that comes in in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, with the introduction of the sons of God who find the daughters of men attractive, and they come into them, which means they had sexual relations with them, and they actually brought forth a superhuman race of giants known as the Nephilim. Now, that's a serious situation that happened because Satan is the enemy of God is trying to pollute the gene pool in order to keep the promise of one who would crush his head from coming true. And so now you have a plaguing of the gene pool and a severe distortion going on with the human race that it has now met with the judgment of the flood. But I want to take you to another instance where something takes place. Turn back to the left to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And in this situation here, we're going to watch something that many people understand. We, we know it. We accept it. But we just move right on and we don't think anything more of it and realize the ramifications that it has. Chapter 11 of Genesis. Let's start in verse 1. We'll read the whole thing quickly. Uh, I think we're doing pretty good on time. It says here, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. Now, if you want to know where Shinar is, it's in the area of Babylon, what later becomes Babylon. And it says here, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, now watch this. We will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, the command of God when Noah and his sons came off the ark was to multiply and to fill up the earth, spread out. 
This right here is an absolute rebellion and an affront to Yahweh's command. The reason why they built the tower high was for two reasons. Number one, to elevate themselves to the level of God, much like we see the idea of what Satan wanted to do. As we see Lucifer in Isaiah 14, wanted to ascend to the heavens and be like the Most High. But also, from seeing what the flood was able to do on the earth, they thought that if they built the tower high enough, they would build it high enough to where they could avoid another flood if God chose to judge them in that way. Now notice that's derived from unbelief because he said he would never judge the the world in that way ever again. So that would be him breaking his promise. But also on top of that, it is absolute rebellion on their part to do what God said to do. So now notice verse five, Yahweh came down to see the city of the tower, which the sons of men had built. And Yahweh said, behold, They are one people. They are united is the idea. They're united uh, in depravity. And they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. In other words, the extent of their evil and their self-righteousness and their self-serving will only explode from this moment forward. And so he says here, verse 7, Come, let us go down there, uh, down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. Now, what we often do with this passage is we look at it and we say, Oh, this is where all the different languages come from. And we move on and we don't think about the implications of what's really going on here. Look at verse 8. So Yahweh scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. So notice, Yahweh causes them to move out and to do what he initially commanded them to do by confusing their language, and they get together in groups where they can understand one another, and they spread out geographically because of that. Verse 9, therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth, and from there Yahweh scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, you have people divided up, and if this were the only time that this referred to this, uh, we, we, we might take it just at face value and move on and not think anything more of it. Now I'm going to ask you to take your Bible and turn into Deuteronomy chapter 32. If you can ever go through Scripture, and, and you have to be careful with your cross-references if your Bible gives you that. Some of them are really great, and some of you lead, lead you in, in, a, in, a, in a pond somewhere. You're kind of curious how you ended up with these scriptures that they're bringing up. So you have to use discernment. But anytime that you can find a passage of scripture that is going to make a comment on other portions of scripture, you want to pay careful attention because the Bible is its own best commentary. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And I want you to start at seven. This is a song by Moses. It's written in poetic form. Now that doesn't mean that everything is expressive and not real and it's over emotional. That's not how they did poetry at that time. It's very much based on truth and it's communicating something. It says here, verse seven, remember the days of old, consider the years of all generations. In other words, he's saying, think back on history past. Think about where we've come from. Notice he says, ask your father and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you. So those that are older and have more wisdom will point you in this direction. And watch what he says here. When the most high And that's the Hebrew El Elyon. Now, why is that important? Because God is called the Most High 
capital G, God, in contrast to the created beings who are lower G, gods, which would be considered celestial beings and fallen angels, or if we want to say they're demons. Notice he says here, when the Most High, now watch this, gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, or maybe your translation, if you're using something different, will say the sons of Adam. What event is that? That event is the Tower of Babel event. So notice, he's placing this at a moment in time. When El Elyon gave the nations their inheritance, he spread them out to allotments of land. Now, if you want to know more about that whole idea, you can look at Genesis 10, which is called the Table of Nations. Again, this is stuff for you to read throughout the week, just to have a a better rounded perspective of this. Or you look at Paul's sermon in the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, where it talks about that God has fixed the boundaries of people. So they're all spread out, and he separated the sons of man. He separated mankind out. Notice, he set boundaries of the people, and now here's where it gets confusing. According to the number of the sons of Israel. Now let's read nine, and then we'll back up. Four, there's your causal conjunction. Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. Now, this text has been highly debated. And I think the reason is, is because a lot of translations that have come out have not taken the more recent understanding that we've gotten from the Dead Sea Scrolls and have not updated their translations. They just left them as they are. The NASB here from 1995 is derived from a portion that's called the Masoretic Text. Now, this is all nerdy stuff. Listen to me now. Believe me later. However you want to do that. But the Masoretic Text was dating earliest at the 9th century AD. For the longest time, that was the most recent manuscripts we had of copies of the original, so copies upon copies that were nine centuries removed from the date of writing. That's the best we had. But when they came upon the Dead Sea Scrolls, we now all of a sudden had all of these manuscripts that dated all the way back to around 250 BC. So this is covering a major gap. In fact, when they compared the Masoretic copy of Isaiah with the Dead Sea Scrolls copy of Isaiah, they found that there was virtually no discrepancy whatsoever in what they found. It was incredible how God had preserved his word over that long stretch of time. But With the unveiling of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we actually found a lot of really interesting things to help us clean up the text. So when it says here at the end of verse 8, according to the number of the sons of Israel, if you have an ESV translation, your translation will actually say according to the number of the sons of God. Also, if you have a revised standard version, if you have a Jerusalem Bible, you will see that. In this translation, sons of God... Or it says angels of Elohim or angels of God, something to that effect, is actually derived from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and that incurred in between Malachi and Matthew. So that was a very recent, fresh translation. It changed just because of language. But also, when they uncovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found that as well. And the Dead Sea Scrolls hold a much earlier date than what was held in the Masoretic text. So in bridging that gap, there's some confusion about what this may mean. So just real quick to give you some things, some of the more recent translations that have tackled this and have incorporated this new information from the older manuscripts of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Good News Bible says he assigned to each nation a heavenly being. Uh, The New Living Translation says, according to the number of his heavenly court, 
the Septuagint, uh, different Septuagint translations actually translate it the angels of God. The Dead Sea Scrolls can say the children of God. Uh, and what this is, is this is actually showing us about the divine counsel of Yahweh, which are heavenly host, created beings that Yahweh has entrusted the care of the nations due to their rebellion and rejection of him at Babel. So when when they they mounted this revolt against God's commandment at Babel, there was actually uh, a, a turning away that God did in dividing them up by their languages, and he was giving them over to the false worship that their hearts so desperately desired. You say, well, how in the world could God do that? That's just not fair. Number one, life is not fair. Number two, we don't operate according to a perfect standard of truth. And number three, it's not any different from what we see in Romans chapter one, where if somebody's heart craves after sin long enough, the passive wrath of God goes into effect and he removes his hands from the situation and he gives our wicked hearts what we desire to help us recognize how desperate our need and our depravity is so that we will call out for him to save us. This isn't any different from what we see throughout the scriptures. Now, if you've got a pen handy, let me give you some things to jot down that will further prove this point here. Psalm 89 verses 6 and 7. Psalm 89 verses 6 and 7. Psalm 29 1. Let's jot these down quickly. Psalm 29, 1. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Job chapter 2, verse 1. Job chapter 38, verse 7. And of course, we have the instance with the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. You can look over that again and see that those are angelic beings uh, who, are, who are lustful is what it is, demonic. And then you also have Daniel chapter 10. Daniel 10, verses 13, 20, and 21. Daniel 10, verses 13, 20, and 21. And you will find there where, where uh, the archangel says that uh, the prince of Persia actually det detained him from coming and delivering the answer of the prayer, meaning that there are spiritual forces. Now, what does that mean? It means that what we're actually dealing with in our situation of the world today is the idea that there are uh, angelic beings or demons that, that have been given ranking responsibility to govern well nations that they've been placed over. Now, you may look at all this and you say, well, wait a second, my translation says Israel and I just can't buy what you're saying. Let me read to you a quote. It's kind of long. We're going to put it up on the screen for you, but follow along with me so that you'll see this. This is from a guy named Michael Heiser. He has a book called The Unseen Realm. Uh, it's about 20 bucks on Amazon. I encourage you to get it. It's an intriguing read. It will challenge a lot of your traditional thinking about the Bible, but he is a Hebrew scholar. He actually graduated in Semitic studies from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, yet he still holds to the Bible. So uh, put that one together and have fun with it, but I encourage you to, to get this book. He says here, most English Bibles do not read according to the number of the sons of God in Deuteronomy 32.8. Rather, they read according to the number of the sons of Israel. The difference derives from disagreements between manuscripts of the Old Testament. Sons of God is the correct reading as is now known from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Frankly, you don't need to know all the technical reasons for why the sons of God reading in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 is what the verse originally said. You just need to think a bit about the wrong reading, the sons of Israel. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 harks back to the events at the Tower of Babel, an event that occurred before the call of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. This means that the nations of the earth were divided at Babel before Israel even existed as a people. It would make no sense 
for God to divide up the nations of the earth according to the number of the sons of Israel, if there was no Israel. And so when we see this, what happened at Babel, we actually see that because of their rebellion and their revolt against God, essentially they did not want God to be the king over the entire world. God spread them out and gave them over to the false gods that they were craving. And instead, in the very next chapter, chapter 12 of Genesis, decided that he would choose someone for himself out of that situation and develop a new nation that would be his inheritance. That's why verse 9 of Deuteronomy 32 reads, For Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. Now, just to expand your understanding a little bit more before we tie it all together, I know you think that I'm on this fantastic rabbit trail, uh, but in order to tie it all together, I want to show you this. Turn with me to Psalm 82. Turn to Psalm 82. We'll go through this quickly. I'll make some observations uh, I encourage you, if you can if you can find it back through Foundational Framework, we spent a lot more time on this in the beginning, uh, just so that we understood what was going on in, in the celestial realm and the spiritual realm regarding our existence as people. But this is how God has decided to set up things in heaven. And Psalm 82 is very interesting because it is a rebuke. In Psalm 82, verse 1, it says, God, or the, or the idea of Elohim is what we would say, Elohim takes his stand... In his own congregation. Now, if you notice, if you have a New American Standard Bible 1995 that has your footnotes here, you will look over to the side and you notice it will say, he takes his stand in the congregation of God or the gods is the idea there. Uh, he says he judges in the midst of the rulers. And notice you've got something there. Gods, little g gods. The word is Elohim. So what it's saying is, is Elohim takes his stand amongst the Elohim. God, almighty creator God, takes his stand amongst the little gods. And here's what Yahweh accuses them of. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Have you ever wondered why societies are crooked? They're crooked because they've got crooked celestial, spiritual uh, governorship over the top of them that are leading people astray. Now, our hearts are wicked enough as they are. It's not like we need all that to help it. But if you wonder where a lot of this comes and why societies are twisted, why we have such rampant evil going on, a lot of it comes from that. And notice that's Yahweh, a pure, righteous, holy creator God, is accusing them of because they know the difference between right and wrong. Notice he says in verse 3, vindicate, he gives them a, a directive, vindicate the weak and fatherless, do justice to the afflictive and destitute, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. In other words, you guys as little g gods are responsible for governing them, get in there and act justly. And then he gives an evaluation of this divine counsel. He says, they do not know, nor do they understand. Now, does that mean they were ignorant of it? No, it means they were paying no attention to it. It means they were downplaying it. They did not see it as significant. And because they had led such people astray, they were power driven. It says here, they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now watch this, verse 6. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of El Elyon. Notice that, the God Most High, Elyon, Most High. So notice, you are all accountable 
to the Creator because He's the one who created you. Verse 7, nevertheless, you will die like men. Now notice that's a judgment. It speaks of their destruction, but why would He contrast dying like men with them if these were just human beings they were talking about? The reason is, is because it's not. He's talking about the failure of these gods to judge the nations justly, even though these nations asked for it by their rebellion at Babel. So nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. And then it says, Arise, O Elohim, judge the earth. Now watch this, for it is you who possess all the nations. Now, if you have a New King James version, or if you have an ESV version, you will notice that it doesn't say possess there. It says, for it is you who shall inherit all the nations. Why would it be put that way? Because the Lord's inheritance is Israel, is Jacob. But notice it speaks of the fact that he is going to judge these gods as insufficient and unqualified to reign over the nations that he at one time disinherited, and he's going to do something incredible by making all the nations once again his inheritance. Now, with that in mind, turn with me to Matthew 28, and we're going to see a very very familiar passage, but we're going to talk about a little bit more about what it means and why it should be striking to us as believers in Jesus Christ on earth at this moment. Turn to Matthew 28. Again, all the scriptures are up on the screen for you. For some reason, you don't have the scriptures with you today. And you guys are probably very familiar with this, but let's pay really close attention. Verse 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now stop. Isn't Jesus God? Yes. Doesn't he have perfect rulership over all things? Well, yeah. So why would he say, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth? Why does he start... The Great Commission that way. The reason is, is because when the kingdom was offered to the Jews and they rejected the kingdom and they crucified their Messiah, their rejection of the Messiah now opened up the way through the death and resurrection of Christ to reclaim the nations that God had disinherited over to false gods because of their rebellion at the time of the Tower of Babel. And so when we're told that all authority has been given to Jesus Christ, that is the marking of now Jesus is going to take back all the nations that were once cast away because of their rampant revolt. He says here, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Remember before you dealt with something like Matthew 12, it was, or Matthew 10, go only to the house of Israel. Do not go to the Samaritans. Do not go to anyone else to the nations. Only go to Israel. Now he's telling them, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Because at that moment of resurrection and commissioning, this was the call for the church to be Christ and to take the message of Christ to the world. God is now reclaiming the nations through the message that we have to speak to them. Now, I need to go a little bit deeper with this in order to show you the significance of what's going on here. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I know your Bible's getting a workout today. That's all right. It appreciates the exercise, I promise you, and so does your heart. Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to tie up this idea with justification has always been by faith alone. 
And we're going to see what exactly was accomplished in the cross of Christ in order to bring back together the nations and Israel into one new man. It says here in chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So salvation is the gift of God. It comes by grace. It's appropriated by faith. And notice, consistent with what Paul wrote in Romans, there is no works. Notice verse 9, Not a result of works, so that no one may, what is it? Boast, just as we saw in Romans 3.27. No boasting. Boasting is shut out of this situation. The work is done by Christ. For, verse 10, we are his workmanship. And notice it's we. We are his workmanship. It's a corporate thing. The church is the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what we've been created to do, which God prepared beforehand. And what was the reason? So that we would walk in them, so that we would manifest these good works. So just as Israel would seek to keep the law, develop intimacy with Yahweh, and that be infectious to the castaway nation so that they would take note. And if you want to know if that was the reason, it's Deuteronomy chapter 4. All the nations would say, there's no God that is as righteous as your God. There's no God who is as intimate with his people as your God is with the people of Israel. Well, it's pretty much the same way with the church is now. And the idea is, is through our good works and being his workmanship, his masterpiece that people would observe, they would become attracted to the saving message of the gospel. Verse 11, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, now notice that's the nations, in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. And the reason why he brings that up is because that's where the Jew tried to get their bragging rights from. My bragging rights are the fact that God has given us circumcision as a covenant of faith with him. And therefore, since we have all this revelation with God, we know more than you do. And so we look down on you Gentiles, nations, because you're nothing but dogs. Notice that he clarifies that by saying, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Verse 12, remember that you were, now watch this, at that time separate from Christ. In other words, you were cast away at a time. Notice it says excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, without the creator God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Jesus Christ, you, who's you? Gentiles, who were formerly far off. When did that happen? Babel. Have been brought near by what? By the blood of Christ, by the effectual tool that God uses to justify every sinning person through faith. They've been brought near. We as Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For, here's the explanation, he himself is our, everybody think Romans 5.1, he is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh, notice it's a death truth, it has to deal with the cross, the enmity, the idea of butting heads, working against, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Why? So that in himself, in Christ Jesus... He might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body, and that's the body of Christ, the church, to God through the cross, there's the mention of the blood again, by it 
sorry, by it, having put to death the enmity. So the law being that dividing point that allowed for the Jews to have intimacy and the Gentiles couldn't have intimacy unless they proselytized into Judaism at that time or became Jews, Israelites at that time uh, by confession and upkeeping the law, all of that is destroyed in the cross. The cross sets the grounds for the work. And so this notion of the law can't even come up because Jesus destroyed it when he died. So notice verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far away. There's that word peace again, and far away, there's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, even those who had this past revelation of God. He was now preaching peace to them as well because there was none. Verse 18, for through him, through Jesus, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Notice the Trinity there. For through him, that's the Son, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Father, God the Father, creator of all things. This is the power of the cross and that it takes these disinherited nations, what we were all part of at one time, and it involves us into a new realm of acceptance, which is the one new man. It's the church. And this is why the church is separate from the nation of Israel. And there are definite dividing lines that are evident. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn back to Romans 3. Verse 31, and we'll finish this here. Romans 3, 31. Actually, let's read 30 again because it's just so sweet. Since indeed God who will justify, declare righteous, the circumcised, the Jew by faith, and the uncircumcised, the Gentile through faith, is one. One and the same God, declaring that people are only acceptable on the equal ground of faith with all of the work done by Jesus, and it's a perfect work. And now there comes a question, verse 31, do we then nullify the law? Now, what's interesting about this word nullify, it could mean invalidate. Do we invalidate the law through faith? Now that faith has come, does that mean that the law has no role anymore? And he gives you a double negative here. May it never be. If you have a Spanish translation, I hope it says, no way, Jose. But it says, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish, and that word establish there means validate. We validate the law. Why do we validate the law? Because the law declares every person guilty before God. The law was never a means of acceptance with God. It only increased the case of guiltiness against us. So the law is validated and that it stands true. It's true. It's right. It's, it was written by the finger of God. It's what he wanted people to know about how to have a fellowship experience with him. But notice this new acceptance by God that we have. In fact, it's not new at all. It's always been ever since the time of Abraham and even back to Adam. It's all based on faith. And that's because of the perfect work of another. And that's why it's completely apart from the law. The law can only condemn and the law can only divide. And when people decided that they would serve themselves through this situation, Jesus Christ has become the end of the law for righteousness to every person who believes. And he unifies those who were far off and those who were near but ignorant, trying to earn it by the law, the Jews, into one new man, fully accepted, eternally secured because of the work of Christ. So through Jesus Christ... God is right now, ever since this mention in Romans 28, the cross and the resurrection, God is gathering the nations back to himself, both disinherited Gentiles and wayward Jews, and faith is what makes the equal footing before the creator. 
and our acceptance is only gained because of the blood work of Jesus Christ. If anything, I hope that encourages you to recognize, even if we're in quarantine, we're in isolation, you're not seeing people much. I know you guys are blowing up Facebook like it's going out of style. Uh, I hear all about it. But we still have a message to preach regardless of what boundaries are around us. All Gentiles have been brought near because of the power of the cross. We are God's means of reaching people now. And if we can speak it, speak it. If we can type it, type it. If we can write a letter and send it, send it. Now is the time more than ever for lost people to recognize that their hope was never in this world to begin with. This quarantine has only made that a stark reality for them. And so now is the time to speak about the grace of God in uniting people in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's only by His blood that we are saved. So I encourage you, take this time, use it wisely, pray upon people that need to know the gospel. I don't mean like pray upon them like you're going to devour them. I mean pray upon them like lift them up to the Lord so that He opens doors so that we can walk through as His representatives and call them to be reconciled by faith to God. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for an incredible grand plan that you have set forward where you are still just and you are still righteous and you do not accept sin in any way. But Father, that revolt and rebellion of people wanting to do what is right in their own eyes, make a name for themselves, exalt themselves, and the failure of the divine counsel to oversee the nations and to rule justly. Father, you will judge in that situation, but your remedy is to judge all sin of mankind in your son, Jesus. And we thank you, God, that he died on that cross in our place. We thank you for the substitution that he is for us, that he is our mercy seat, and that whether we are Jew, whether we are Gentile, we are united in the cross of Christ. How wonderful it is to know that we have a message that every single person around us needs to hear. Father, please open doors. Please open doors. Please, whatever barriers we think that are there, open our eyes to look beyond. Just because we're quarantined doesn't mean that you are. There's nowhere that your hand cannot reach. Father, give us boldness. Give us tender hearts. Give us able tongues with the gospel of Jesus Christ to speak about your great love for the world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.